Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Wednesday night, we mark 80 years since one of the most daring and successful attacks of the Second World War. On the night of May 16, 1943, 133 air crew, including 30 Canadians, on 19 Lancaster bombers, took part in what became known as the Dam Buster Raid. Many of them didn't return. We look back at why it became such a historic moment. It's spring, and that means road crews are back out across the country, and so is the threat they face from drivers. We get first-hand stories and find out what we can all do to make sure they're safe at work. Bail is a question of balance, finding an equilibrium between respect for the rights of the accused and public safety. Under heavy criticism, the Liberal government has brought in some changes to bail this week, so did they get that balance right? But first, the cost of rent continues to soar right across the country, up nearly 10% last month over April of 2022. So what's driving it? What impact is it having? And what can be done to better protect the increasing number struggling to afford to put a roof over their heads? We're going to start off talking about tonight is rent. I don't know if you saw this report that came out earlier this week, but rents across this country continue to soar. I don't know about you. I spent but more than half my life as a renter, right? Um, I grew up kind of back and forth between rental places as a kid. Obviously, when you're young, you rent. Uh, I owned a home for a while, then I rented again. So I kind of get both sides of this equation. And when you rent, it's a different kind of anxiety, right? Because you're always at the mercy of somebody else's decision. And when rents really start to skyrocket, as they are these days, um, for a lot of people I know, if you were to lose the rent that you're locked into now and end up back out on the open market, you'd be in real trouble, right? I mean, prices have really, really gone up. Here's an idea. They're up 9.6% across the country in April of this year compared to April of last year. The average monthly asking price for a vacant residential unit in this country now is 2000 and $2. It's up above $2,000 for the first time. Overall, it's up 20% from a pandemic low of about 1662 back in uh, April of 2021. Um, and what's happened now is that it's right across the board. Forget just talking about Toronto and, and Vancouver and those suburbs. It's everywhere. Calgary was up. Edmonton was up. Halifax was up. Ottawa, Montreal, they're all going up. Um, and significantly as well, uh, just some of the more, you know, the average one-bedroom apartment or condo unit nationwide was $1,753, up 10%. The average two-bedroom unit, $2,120, also up 10%. And these, of course, there are extremes. Two-bedroom apartments going for $3,700 in Vancouver, $3,300 in Toronto. So those are the areas. And then all the suburbs around them as well have really been uh, seen some real massive rent increases. Keep in mind, I mean, this is an untenable situation for a lot of Canadians. Um, you know, the average annual salary in this country in 2021 was just under $60,000. If you divide that by 12, your average monthly salary, salary is about 4950 bucks. So, you know, if you factor in rent at around $2,000 a month more, there's not much left over. Part of the problem here, of course, is that um, 
the whole housing market has been in, in, in a real slowdown because of high interest rates and because of high prices. So people aren't moving as the way they used to. Rentals used to be, you know, for many people, a transition to something else. Now they aren't as much. And don't forget, one in three Canadian households, 33.5%, rent their homes. So it's not like this is, this is a few people. This is a big chunk of the Canadian population that, also, that, also, that often feels, I think, kind of left out. We're going to look at the numbers first, then look at some solutions after. First is Paul Dannison of Rentals.ca, and he joins me now. Paul, thank you. Great to be back with you, Ben. It, it feels like we've had this conversation before in the not-so-distant past, but these new numbers for April, uh, if someone's in the rental market, they probably won't be surprised. If someone isn't, uh, they may find those those increases pretty shocking and right across the board, too. Right. Yeah, the rents have been rising uh, significantly in the past year about 10% higher than last April and 20% higher than back in the pandemic time of April 2021. And that is happening. I mean, I think we're used to seeing big jumps in places like Vancouver and surroundings, Toronto and surroundings, but you're seeing this in a lot of places. Writ large, what is what is driving it in all markets? And we can talk a bit about the specific markets after that. <laughs> Well, overall, again, it's a supply versus demand issue. Uh, there's just not enough places out there. And that's exact, exacerbated by high interest rates, which keep a lot of uh, first-time home buyers in the rental market, keeps the demand high. Uh, then you have inflation. And also you have uh, high immigration, which is a good thing, but the country welcomes a lot of people in. Again, a very good thing, but uh, then it's with the same breath, they're saying, good luck, find a place to live. Yeah, I mean, I think therein lies the issue, right, is that um, rentals have often been considered to be transitory, right? Uh, you know, the first step towards home ownership, but we see with higher interest rates and mortgage stress tests and high, high real estate prices that a lot of people find themselves uh, stuck renting. And what we're seeing is they're kind of left out, hung out to dry in all this. Yeah, exactly. People used to look at uh, the situation of housing as I'm going to rent until I can save enough down payment to buy. But uh, how can you buy if you have a regular job and your significant other is also working and uh, rent, say the mortgage is 1.2 million or 1.4 million, such as it is in Victoria and Vancouver? Uh, even Toronto, it's it's really high too. So uh, people are thinking, I'm going to be renting either for a long time or for the rest of my life. When you look at how it breaks down regionally, again, I mean, I think we're used to seeing high rents in Toronto, high rents in Vancouver, and those areas around them, those suburbs. Uh, you know, presumably for people who live and work in those cities, right? And those are two of Canada's major markets. But you've seen some of the places that people used to kind of escape to to get away from those rents also jumping. The Calgary's, the Halifaxes, the Montreal's, the Ottawa's, those cities are also jumping up. Uh, how, bi how big a jump are we seeing in those other markets now? Well, Calgary's seeing 20% plus jumps year over year. Uh, Halifax had was in the 20% figures too about six months ago. They're down in the kind of the high teens, as is Ottawa uh, and some of the other places. But yeah, most of the places that people are going to, the rents are going up because people are getting away from these metro areas, Metro Vancouver, the GTA, and discovering places that are cheaper, but then that makes rent rise in other places. Yeah, when you're looking at, uh, and just in terms of what is the most um, coveted and expensive places right now, I gather, as always, I mean, one-bedroom apartments and studios and so on are up, but uh, those needing a little more space are finding it even more difficult to find affordability in the market. 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, the one bedrooms have seen the highest increases, but now people are looking for a little bit more room to spread out after the pandemic. They're they're moving and looking for more space. Some working for home are trying to add an office. So uh, the two bedroom, three bedrooms are uh, rising much faster than the one bedroom. Yeah, I, I break that down for me a bit. What does that What does that look like year over year? If you If you, I mean, one of the big fears now for anyone who's renting now is that if they lose their place and end up back out on that market, just how much things have changed. So, what are you looking at in terms of how that breaks down in, say, a, a major place like a Toronto or a Vancouver? Well, let's look at Vancouver. Uh, if you're looking for a, a one bedroom in Vancouver, you're going to pay almost twenty eight hundred dollars a month, which sounds astronomical, but then you look at a two-bedroom and it's well over 3,700 average. Now, keep in mind, these figures are based on vacant units. The CMHC looks at the total universe of vacant and uh, occupied, but our figures are going to be a little bit closer to what a renter uh, looking for a new place to live are going to find. Yeah, important to keep in mind, this is not what people are actually paying. So many out there pay less than that because they've been in those units for a long time. And, and you mentioned it earlier, too. I mean, people are now in a situation where there are too few units coming onto the market, too, because people can't afford to move or upgrade. Exactly. You know, the federal government has a plan to increase units in its 10-year plan. And uh, BC has come out with a plan, I think, to add about 100,000 units by 2028. And those are all good things. But, you know, is it is it enough? It it doesn't seem like it is. No, I mean, all the units that I see going up are in the price range that you're mentioning. I mean, they're not they're not below market value, that's for sure, or or very few of them seem to be. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one exception to that is uh, in Victoria, they've just opened the Dalmatian, which is a, a cooperation between governments and developers and has buy-in from a nonprofit in the province, so so that's that's a step in the right direction. But there's not that's not a whole lot of units when you're when you're looking at maybe 130 or so. And it also seems a little bit. I mean, not to talk too much about policy, but it also seems to ignore where the problem is now moving to. Whereas we understand uh, the issue with people with low incomes and finding affordable housing. Now we're pushing it right up into people making regularly sort of you know average and higher salaries are having trouble finding affordable rentals. Yeah, exactly. And the hard thing is, is when if, when someone has to move because of a job or they they need to move for whatever reason and they get back out into the reality of the rental market today, uh, you know, you had in, interest rates and, and inflation and all that. And they're looking at maybe four, five hundred dollars or more a month in rent, maybe for the same place or even less. Paul Dannison of Rentals.ca is with us. We're talking about a huge jump, according to their numbers, in the cost of rent in this country in recent times, uh, up 9.6% uh, in April of 2022 over April of 2021. Uh, the average monthly asking price for a residential unit in this country, you may pay less, but if you're out there looking for something new, is $2,002. And that's for, I mean, that's not for a necessarily for a big place. If you live in Toronto and suburbs or Vancouver and suburbs, it's much higher than that. Prices in Calgary are up, prices in Edmonton are up, prices in Ottawa are up, prices in Halifax are up, Montreal, you name it. Uh, Paul, you did mention that there has been sort of a, a jump here that, that, especially in those numbers compared to 2021, that we may start to see a little bit of stability in the market in the next 12 months, for instance. Right, because uh, the rents went down during the pandemic, and we saw a lot of people 
getting getting units for three to four percent less than what they were. Now that we're out of the pandemic and past a year uh, of that, we're going to see some rents probably stabilize. I think we as we look into the fall into the winter time. Any idea where that stabilization might happen? I mean, it's really, I know it's really hard to predict, but we've seen some big increases in places like Calgary, big increases in places like Edmonton and Halifax. Are those the ones that are going to stabilize or are you looking at the really expensive markets, the Toronto's and the Vancouver's to kind of uh, settle in somewhere in those high ranges that we're seeing now? Well, it's hard to predict, as you said, but I think in the higher, I think in the markets like the Vancouver's and Calgary, uh, Toronto, even Ottawa, I think they will start to stabilize first, and then the smaller markets will follow. I, although we're not talking about price decreases here, right? I mean, it doesn't no. look like the supply and demand issue is uh, is going to solve itself or, or be solved anytime soon. No, not at all. There won't be decreases. I just think that the increases are going to be a little bit less as we move into uh, fall and winter. And again, hard to predict. Uh, but at this point, I guess we're more hopeful than predicting. Right. Uh, and, and do you think this, I mean, the, these increases we saw right across the board, I think that's what was surprising perhaps about these numbers is, I, you know, obviously I look at these numbers when you release them and it felt like for quite a while there was kind of an imbalance. Prices were going back up quite quickly in the big cities, you know, the Vancouver's and the Toronto's, but they were kind of okay in other parts of the country. Now we're seeing everything rise. Do you think that uh, that's going to continue? I think it will continue for a while. I think people are still, you know, as rents rise in Vancouver and Toronto and in some of the bigger markets, they're they're looking other places. They're they're looking, hey, I can I can get a lot more uh, square footage in my apartment, living somewhere else, and maybe I can work from home there. Maybe I still work in in Toronto, but I can I can move to Halifax and work from home and have a much nicer space and more room, backyard. Uh, I think people are uh, still doing that. And that's why I think you're seeing rise in those secondary markets. We're still seeing some of the uh, some of the sort of the ripple effect of, of people being able to work at home. So someone from Toronto or someone from somewhere else gets to move to a place like Halifax, then that pushes a Haligonian out of their own market, right? Exactly. And that's always the case for people who have lived in a place for a really, really long time, like like Halifax or London or Hamilton or places like Surrey and BC is, is they've lived there for a long time and then they go out and have to rent a place. It's going to be much higher because they have a lot of people who have moved there from other provinces, let alone all the immigration that's coming in. Right. And that immigration still, you know, up above half a million. There's, there just isn't enough room. I mean, and that's not to say that the immigration isn't much needed for the rest of the economy, but, but there just doesn't seem to be a lot out there for anyone. And then all of a sudden the competition gets heavy and, and renters are in a really tough spot. Yeah, they really are. And I'm a big proponent of immigration and I think Canada has done well versus other countries in that regard, but you can't invite a half a million people into the country and you look at what's the CMHC vacancy rate overall for the entire country is 1.9%. Healthy is three to 4%. You, you as a country have to be more involved in uh, making sure these people coming into the country have a place to live. And everyone else as well at this point. Yeah. Paul Dennison, as always, thank you. Thank you. We're going to go back to rent now, and we'll go back to something uh, perhaps not more important, but certainly more more serious, definitely more important. Um, we were talking the last half hour 
uh, with Paul Dennison of rentals.ca just about how much we've seen the price of rent jump once again. The average uh, rental unit now in this country for a residential unit, the asking price is above $2,000. 2002, uh, rents were up 9.6% in April of 2023 over the same period last year. And, um, you know, average rent has jumped by $340 in that period right across the country. And we're seeing it absolutely everywhere. You know, they're obviously the big cities like Vancouver and Toronto, where rents have been traditionally really high, they're getting even higher. But even some of those places where people were going to, people were leaving the West Coast to go to places like Calgary, rents there are up, Edmonton rents are up, Halifax rents are up, Montreal, Ottawa, and so forth. Um, and part of the issue too is that a lot of tenants find themselves in these really unenviable situations where they're at the mercy of a landlord, perhaps an individual or a corporation. And a lot of them, and more than 50%, I think, across the country, according to new research, when they do get evicted, it's of no fault of their own. It's not like they're not paying their rent. It's not like they're good tenants, not good tenants. Um, but somehow there's been a decision to, uh, in some way, shape, or form, either to move people in, to sell the unit, uh, to renovate, rent evictions, we hear about it a lot. So there's a lot of different things going on out there that, that's made it very perilous for renters, who make up a third, by the way, of dwellers in this country are, are renters. And sometimes it feels like they're not paid much attention to. Uh, joining me now with more on this is Jim Dunn. He's director of the McMaster-based Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. I know these, uh, you know, Hamilton's another example of places where rents I know have really gone up of late as well. Uh, but but when you look at what's happening here, how would you qualify it? I mean, these numbers don't come as a huge surprise, but wow, it's high. Yeah, no, it's a really challenging time right now, um, certainly in the rental market. And, you know, these things are all linked to things like the ownership market and they link to homelessness on the other end of the spectrum. Um, but, uh, you know, most recently, I think a couple of the key drivers we've seen that are affecting the rental market indirectly are uh, that uh, people are having trouble leave exiting renting into home ownership. And partly right. that's due to the increased interest rates and the higher cost of borrowing um, slowdowns. You know, and those conditions have slowed down new construction as well in the ownership market. So BC, for instance, had a home ownership rate in 2016 of uh, 70%, and now it's down to 66.8%. And it's a similar kind of pattern nationally, and that represents nationally the decline from 69 to 66% homeownership actually uh, nationally represents 100,000 households that didn't leave renting for homeownership. And so that just puts a lot of pressure on the rental market. Yeah, it sounds like a small number until you until you put it into uh, it's it's a small percentage until you, until you put it into numbers. A hundred thousand units not moving, right? That's a huge number That's of right. units, especially in this country. Yeah, for sure. Um, the consequences you've mentioned them. Uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of focus on trying to build affordable housing in places like I'm out in the West Coast. There's been a lot of uh, attention to, on that, but it feels like everyone's getting squeezed now. Everyone who rents is getting squeezed. I mean, there are those who obviously can afford it, but um, and and how do you how do you react to it? I guess I mean, what's the answer to not enough supply, lots of demand, a difficult purchasing market, as you were pointing out? Uh, what kind of options are there out there? Uh, to protect renters who find themselves sort of at the mercy of a lot of different forces beyond their control right now. Yeah, well, I know one of the things, of course, and you kind of alluded to it before, is that the no-fault evictions are kind of are a big issue. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they don't really show up in rental tribunals and that sort of thing because a lot of people just won't contest uh, an eviction. 
And, um, and, you know, compared to other countries, we have relatively weak tenant rights. And so that means that uh, things like, you know, the landlord can say, well, I'm going to have a family mover member move into this into this unit. And so therefore, I'm going to evict you that being that's not legal in other countries. And, um, and of course, there's all kinds of questions about how often that's legitimate. And sometimes many people actually know that it's not legitimate that and that the landlord is up to some funny business, but they decide, well, you know, I'm just not going to contest that I don't want to argue it. And uh, one of the other problems, certainly we've had in Ontario, I'm not sure the situation in BC, is there just hasn't been enough capacity at the landlord and tenant um, tribunal board for people to contest these kinds of things. And there's not enough support for people from a legal standpoint to uh, to protect their tenancy. So that that's definitely a big issue. Yeah, certainly a system that was set up for 70% home ownership or more is now finding itself with less and more and more renters. I mean, a third of, I was reading the other day that a third of Canadians rent, right? And I mean, it was often seen as being temporary. Uh, certainly for That's new right. Canadians, it was seen as being the step to something different. It, it, it's, it's. I mean, when we look at it across the country, I think that's the other concern too, is that even the areas that were seen as being more affordable, you could, you know, you could find cheaper rent at a place like a Halifax or maybe in Ottawa or a Gatineau. And now those are all going up too. It's sort of spreading. Uh, and, and, and then people start to displace other, so people move into new markets and they move those people out, out of the affordability sort of ga- affordability space in their own hometowns. Yeah, no, no, there's definitely a lot of things going on. Very similar kinds of patterns across the country to a different degree. Um, but you know, I mean, I think there's um, there's definitely some things that are that could be done that that aren't necessarily. If, if, if you'd like me to go into a couple of those, yeah, perhaps. by all means, sure. I mean, we were talking a bit about uh, trying to figure out how the no fault eviction issue, which I know is different in other parts of the world. But what else could we do? I mean, I've heard seen talk of of you know of rental subsidies to try and help people yeah. out. Yeah, what 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 would work? Do you think? Yeah, rent supplements actually is is what you're referring to, and that's that's a great idea. So you know, I mean, we uh, we've certainly got a crisis situation right now. It, the degree of crisis might be somewhat temporary because it's got to do with high interest rates to some extent, and uh, and also you know builders sitting on the sidelines while the conditions are poor and so forth. And so that would really signal the need to do something at least temporary to keep people in their units. So BC is actually a province that has something called vacancy decontrols. So you if you stay in the same unit your rent is controlled, right? And there's a provincial guideline that says the rent can only go up by so much. And so what we want to do is we want to try to keep people in their apartments. And many of them don't face a housing problem. They actually face an income problem. So if we could provide rent supplements to uh, folks like that and keep them in their apartments, then that is a way of preserving the rental stock. Because when somebody leaves a rent-controlled apartment, what it means is not only an affordability problem for the person, it also means that we've lost an affordable unit to the stock. And so that's, uh, you know, forever. And so those are those are big issues, and I think that that's one remedy that we could use. And um, you know, uh, as my one of my colleagues likes to say, uh, just because uh, somebody has a, a, a problem affording the rent, they might have perfectly good housing. We don't have to build them a new house. We can actually probably more cheaply and more and certainly more quickly uh, shore up their uh, their rental situation and their and but with a rent supplement. Right. I mean, it's quite patchwork here, though, of course, because different provinces have different rules when it comes to tenant yep. rights, right? I mean, Alberta has very few. BC has more. I grew up in Quebec where tenants' rights were pretty pretty strict. Uh, Indeed. Comparatively. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, do you feel like – I mean, it feels like this is a policymaker pro- issue. It's not necessarily a, pro- a problem caused by policymakers necessarily, but it's certainly something that needs to be 
corrected by policymakers, I would think, but, but with good policy. And that's tough. I know you work exactly in that space. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's, you know, one of the ones I, there's one that I, the thing I described is one option, um, certainly strengthening tenants rights, as you say, there's, um, you know, Quebec has had actually very strong rent controls and strong tenants rights for a long time. And, um, and it's had actually a pretty successful rental market and it's, and they have a lot, a much greater proportion of renters, um, people, you know, not quite so def- desperate to get out of renting because, uh, because it's actually a pretty stable way to live. Whereas in other provinces, it's actually not a particularly attractive way to live. And as you alluded to earlier, kind of temporary. One of the other things that, that we would like to see more of is right now, uh, the vast majority of house renter households get their housing from for-profit landlords. So landlords who are motivated to increase rents, who are thinking about their property as an asset and thinking, you know, I'd like to be able to sell this in the future for a capital gain. And what we'd like to see is more housing provided by the non-market sector. So non-profit organizations that are committed to providing reasonably priced housing in perpetuity. And then that way it keeps rents you know, not going up ridiculous amounts and stable over time um, and also protects that housing in perpetuity as well. And so we we have a mix in Canada that's very, very much dominated by the dominated by this for market, sorry, for profit part mm-hmm. of the market and this moving to more of a non-market system, you know, and again, just some gradual small changes. Right. So not not a huge transformation, um, but even relatively small changes could actually have make a big difference. Jim Dunn is with us this half hour. He's director of the McMaster-based Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. We're looking for solutions to try to better protect renters in this country. Rents are going way up. Uh, A lot of renters are finding themselves in the difficult situation of knowing that if they lose the place they're in, the the open market's going to be a very unkind place for them if they can afford to even find a place uh, of similar size in their own, in the community that they now live in. Um, Jim, I lived in London for in England for quite a while. Of course, council estates there are a big thing. You find them all over, scattered all over the city, so people can pay affordable rent and still live near where they work, and so on and so forth. Uh, you were talking a bit earlier about some of the the, the issues, some of the initiatives we could put into place to better protect tenants from uh, no from from being evicted, rental supplements, not more nonprofit actors in the rental space. Um, Something like council flats, I mean, they work really well there. I know there's always issues about them and there's long waiting lists, but but could you see it, us moving towards something like that here? It's, I mean, I know it exists already to some extent. It's just not as obvious as it is, as it is in the UK. Yeah, I mean, uh, council flats, which are essentially publicly owned and operated housing, um, that's something that's a much smaller portion of our rental market in Canada than it is in the UK. And part that's actually part of the reason why it's so big in the UK is because they had so much housing that was destroyed during the war and then rebuilt mm-hmm. by government. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, to give you an idea, uh, about 22% of households in the UK um, get their housing from the public sector, whereas in Canada, it's more like 4%. And so that's a a really big difference. And actually, it was even bigger before Margaret Thatcher came in in 1980. And sold all the places, the right to buy. The the right to buy scheme, right? So it went down, that was 33% prior to Thatcher. So, uh, so it was a very large proportion. So, I mean, that's you know, for us to get to 22% would be would be a radical transformation. Um, but yeah, certainly what we'd like to see, and, and it's hard to it's hard to imagine the, a full-on public sector return in that way that we had uh, before. Um, but what has been quite successful is uh, new development of uh, of modestly priced housing by nonprofits, and also. What we I think we should see more of is acquisition as well. So many there's lots of buildings that are uh, very desirable by investors 
And those are the buildings that should, you know, typically they have lower rents. And so what we'd want to do is see the non-market sector do that. And British Columbia actually brought in a really good policy and committed $500 million to, uh, to an acquisition fund that's going to allow non-profits to be able to build a, a buy up rental housing. And then, you know, based on a promise that we're going to maintain our mission to keep this housing affordable and do so over the long haul. Any other solutions out there? Because these all seem like, uh, I mean, I guess what's interesting oftentimes is that when it comes to sort of elections, it always feels like renters are kind of left out of the equation when it comes to uh, comes to big policies. And now it feels like that can't happen for much longer, that a lot of a significant, significant chunk of the population are facing some real um, some real stress within the rental market. And that somehow policymakers and you pointed out that people aren't unaware of it. Uh, but that there's going to have to be movement on that front. I think renters are looking for looking for some action now. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, um, you know, it, the thing is, there's no one silver bullet, right? So it's actually going to take a range of strategies, and you hope that some of them are going to get some traction. One of the other ones I think that's got some potential is that uh, there's lots of houses out there where there's room to put an extra unit, you know, in the backyard and that sort of thing. And right. um, while many municipalities have actually legalized accessory dwelling units like that, the challenge is actually incentivizing people to want to develop those, right? And the, the thing is that it's actually pretty complicated to do, right? There's permits involved and there's a certain amount of risk and there might be uh, fees and so on and so forth. So I, I would love to see some innovation on how we get people from the point of like scratching their chin thinking, well, maybe I'd like to have an accessory dwelling unit to actually getting one and getting potentially getting some help with that uh, on the condition that they're going to keep it affordable over a period of time. And so, you know, there's that's just one of many possible things that could be done. And that actually just frees up land that's already developed and exists. And so if we can create, um, you know, we've already essentially eliminated the permitting barriers for that, or not eliminated, but at least reduced the permitting barriers for that. How can we get to incentivizing that and creating some financing and easy pathways to get there, too? Yeah, they used to be illegal in a lot of places, right? They've had to try to, I mean, yeah. that was the starting point was illegal. And now they're trying to move away from that. What do you make of this whole idea of, of sort of office towers and so on now that we're moving on from, you know, now that there are fewer people working in office towers to try and sort of repurpose them, federal buildings, for instance? I mean, it sounds, it sounds good. I'm not sure it would, it would actually work that well. Yeah, so I mean, I've read about it happening in Calgary a little bit, and I think that's it sounds like it's been the place where it's been most successful. Um, but I also know that there's a ton of obstacles to it, and you know, a lot of them just have to do with the way the buildings are designed and constructed, and so uh, so it may not actually have that much of a mileage. But um, you know, it's worth certainly pursuing and seeing what have those places that uh, that are successful in Calgary. What was it that made them successful, and could that be um, done in other places in the country? Because I think that's uh, you know, as you say. Again, the building's there, right? And so the, you've been through, as long as you can eliminate the permitting uh, barriers, which is, can be done pretty quickly by government, and um, you know, maybe there's a way to do it. If, whether it financially pencils out, it's hard to say. It might depend um, a little bit on, uh, on the local context. Yeah, I, I get it. That, that's that's true across the country, Jim. Uh, you know, I knew there I knew there was no silver bullet, but thanks for laying out so many different options on the table. I think it's always helpful uh, to to see what what the alternatives are and what works and what's worked elsewhere and what could work here. Yeah, no problem. And really, thank you for taking uh, paying attention to this too, because as you say, this is a group that uh, tends to get ignored. Jim, thanks so much. Take care. Good night. <laughs> This, by the way, is important stuff. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of the federal government over the past while about bail. 
Uh, essentially, the accusation being from many, including the premiers, territorial and provincial, uh, police associations, police officers, and the opposition, that essentially the bail system had become, quote unquote, a revolving door. Now, I always hate those terms like jail, not bail, a revolving door, because they don't really seem to help in any way, shape, or form. Maybe the bail system needs some fine-tuning. Maybe it needs to be looked at again. But it's not, it's not as of slogans. It's not, of, it's not as if it's a revolving door. It's, it's a seesaw, right? And what you want to do is find the balance. You want to find the balance between the presumption of innocence and the right of every Canadian to be presumed innocent unless uh, in, in proven otherwise or until proven otherwise. And what that means when it comes to being incarcerated, by the way, because that's essentially taking away your liberty before you've been found guilty of anything um, versus protecting the public, right? There is a, and it is a delicate balance. So I find the sloganeering and the politicking and all the stuff around it really kind of gets, in the, it's just noise, right? It just gets in the way. It doesn't solve the problem. We know there's an issue when so many different groups, including police and premiers and so on, and victims' rights groups get up and say, you need to fix something. Um, so yesterday, the federal justice minister, David Lametti, introduced legislation that he claims will improve what he calls Canada's, quote, fundamentally strong bail system. The bill's text says the proposed changes will create new reverse onus bail conditions for people charged with certain serious violent offenses involving a weapon who were convicted in the last five years of a similar offense. Reverse onus just means it's up to the person um, to prove that they should get bail, not for uh, the prosecution to prove that they shouldn't, right? Uh, the Liberals' proposed changes would also add certain firearms offenses to those reverse onus provisions and expand them for offenses involving intimate partner violence. But Lametti says the government can only go so far. You are innocent until proven guilty. This is, this is a, a critically important part of our legal system. But what we're doing for certain violent offenses is changing the default position and making sure that it is only in cases where there isn't a threat to public security that they will get bail. Now, law and order has been a big uh, issue for the opposition, for the Conservative Party, certainly something that Pierre Polyev has talked about a lot. And he, of course, was critical of these fixes. Um, he says that it does nothing to deal with violent repeat offenders and that he were, if he were prime minister, he would make it so that repeat violent offenders are not granted bail hearings in the first place. A common sense conservative government will reverse Trudeau's catch and release. We will bring in laws that require repeat violent offenders who are newly arrested for violence to, to stay behind bars with jail, not bail, jail, not bail, until their trial is done and their sentence is complete. Right. Well, to, to sort through the politicking and the policy and all this is Donardo Jones. He's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Windsor. You may have seen him testify at committee not that long ago when this very issue was on the table. Donardo, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So let's, let's get to the root of this, because I know you look into this a lot. You testified in front of a parliamentary committee about this. Um, the criticisms we, we, we know to some extent, but what do you make of the criticisms writ large? Are, are they fair that this has become a, you know, a catch and release, quote unquote, to use the opposition terms? I mean, has, was the bail system in dire need of some fixing? Well, a few things um, <clears throat> that I think uh, your listeners and Canadians should be aware of is that uh, currently, 70% of the provincial detention facilities, um, you know, consist of people who have either been denied bail or have not applied for bail. So 70% of the inmate population at the provincial detention level um, consists of people who have not been convicted of a crime. 
So to say that the bail system is weak or engaged in some kind of catch and release type of um, uh, process is fundamentally incorrect based on that statistic alone. Yeah, I, I think what as in as is always the case with legal justice issues, when there are exceptions, right? Uh, uh, people start to point to those exceptions, and the exceptions can sometimes, as it was the case in Ontario, be fatal, right? I mean, that that therein lies the the, the stakes that were that that are at play here. What do you, what did you make of of the of the changes that were brought in yesterday? This idea of reverse onus for at least some people. So reverse onuses are not new. Right. So we have we have reverse onuses already on the books. Now, the question we have to be asking ourselves is whether or not these reverse onuses strike that appropriate balance that you mentioned at the, you know, at the top of uh, this conversation, uh, you know, within, you know, um, striking a balance between protecting our civil liberties or ensuring the integrity of our civil liberties, but also ensuring uh, public safety. One of the things that the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, warned, um, you know, Parliament is that any measure that is brought into place that is extraneous or outside of the bail system will be constitutionally suspect. So if these reverse onuses are being brought into place for, you know, purely political reasons, you know, um, as you, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the 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 sloganing and the the some right. of the things that we've we've heard uh, that's extraneous to the bail system and that's something that if it comes before the court will be constitutionally scrutinized and probably will be struck down so that's something that um, is obviously to be seen um, but chances are uh, these provisions as presented yesterday in the uh, the bill that was introduced. Um, is more than likely going to be um, constitutionally challenged, which is how we got here in the first place, right? I mean, this is this is why we had the changes back in 2019 that everyone's so up in arms about, right? Is is that not the case? If I remember correctly, ex- 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 exactly. And we haven't had we haven't had enough time to actually say the 2019 reforms have been an unmitigated failure. That's, we just don't have enough data to suggest that. However, you're right that there's been a few high profile, quite tragic incidents that folks are saying somehow um, is uh, proof that the 2019 amendments have failed us. I, I just, I, I would not go as far to draw those conclusions, to say, you know, Bill C-75 and the amendments that were brought in um, that really strengthened, I believe, strengthened uh, the bail system has somehow failed us in, you know, in the last four years. There's just not enough evidence to uh, to draw that conclusion. Yeah, four years when when halfway for half of those four years, people were, you know, living under pandemics and changing and rotating lockdowns and so on, where we didn't get a lot of, uh, we didn't get a chance to see things sort of as they are normally. All that being said, uh, Donato, and I know you're, you're, you know, fully aware of this, uh, you know, when all the premiers and all the police associations and and they all get together and they write letters and so on, it does, it it does, there must be problems with the system somewhere. I know we have probably haven't enough, had enough time to pinpoint what they what exactly they are but it seems like it it does need some sort of fine tuning i just don't think 
we necessarily know exactly what that fine tuning looks like other than for people to sort of throw their hands up and say that it's catch and release, which clearly it's not. So there is a problem, but the problem is more, um, you know, our, the social infrastructure that, you know, we seem to not direct or redistribute any of our public dollars into. Um, this is what causes recidivism. So people who are put on um, bail conditions, for example, um, to reside at a particular address or to, um, you know, uh, seek treatment for a particular, um, you know, illness, you know, alcoholism or drug abuse and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, these orders don't magically manifest these services. We, we're, we're, we're assuming the court is assuming that these services are going to be available and people are going to have access to them. Unfortunately, that's not the case. So these folks are almost, you know, um, to use, you know, to use um, uh, kind of a, uh, a phrase that we see a lot are set up to fail. And this, this, right. is, this is what happens. So it's really the social infrastructure that needs to be addressed. Um, it's not the law itself. The law itself is quite robust. And as I said, it is already extremely difficult for folks to get bail. The question is, when folks are on bail, are they given the opportunity to thrive? That is what matters. Jail is not going to somehow make us safer. Eventually, these people are going to be released at some point. And we know that when people are locked up, it's not that when they are released, they're somehow model citizens. That's just not what the evidence, the evidence does not support that. People actually come out worse. Donato Jones is with us this half hour, an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Windsor. We're talking about bail reform uh, introduced yesterday, some amendments to uh, to the bail system uh, introduced by the federal justice minister, including more reverse onus. I mean, really, the pressure on the government here has been this idea that somehow the system was weakened back in 2019 when different amendments were brought, brought in following a Supreme Court decision that essentially made the government look at this again. Um, Donato, if you, if you could, I mean, one of the issues here, of course, is capacity of jails. You can't just put everyone behind bars. You were mentioning that there are already 70% of people in provincial in the provincial uh, jail system are awaiting trial, right? So, I mean, it, it's, it's just putting more people in jail as, as maybe it's cathartic, but I don't think it's going to help. What would you, what would you do? Where would you start with this? Because people are obviously angry about it. So it's a political issue. Politicians know what, what, how to touch on that. Um, but really, I think all people want is to feel safe, right? And for there to be, to be some fairness in this. So what would you like to see done? Well, I mean, we also have to keep in mind that um, Canadians also have a vested interest in maintaining the integrity of our civil liberties. And, you know, just as much as we have uh, a vested interest in wanting to be um, wanting to be kept safe, um, so again, going back to that um, that that delicate balance that needs to be struck. Now, uh, you know, warehousing people, um, you know, for you know for an extended period of time, um, whether it's you know uh, until they are uh, brought, you know, brought to uh, to trial or you know um, for a sentence, you know, for um, after sentencing is not going to make us safer. I mean, there is enough evidence out there to, um, to support that, that it doesn't make us safer. It's investments in our communities, 
It is giving people opportunities. That is what will create a situation where people will not feel the need to engage in the type of behavior that we label as criminal, whether it's stealing or in, in, you know, involved in um, street-level offending or sometimes very serious um, you know, levels of criminality. That's what we need to invest in, not bigger jails that hold more people. That has never been, it's never been a, um, an approach that has kept you know, society safer. We'll look at the American experiment, for example, right? Two million people, two million people locked up in the American prison system. And it would, it, I don't think it would be reasonable for us to say that America is a country where you know, everyone feels safe. So that's obviously not, I don't mean to use the word obviously, but I think there's enough evidence to suggest that that doesn't make us safer by locking people up. As you said, there may be some temporary uh, feeling of relief. Perhaps folks feel some sense of, um, you know, uh, you know. It feels like they're doing something, right? I mean, it it feels like something's being done, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing to use the criminal the criminal justice system as somehow uh, a way to address certain really complicated social issues i think is very short-sighted the criminal justice system is the government's to use the analogy um our nuclear option it's the most violent tool available to the government to address issues um like mental, you know, mental health or to address issues like homelessness. Why would you use the criminal law to address homelessness or address mental health or address uh, some of these issues that we've seen in some of these high profile incidents over the last few months? There is evidence to suggest that these folks were um, suffering from mental health issues or folks that were you know, uh, perhaps in the throes of some kind of mental uh, breakdown or some kind of psychotic uh, break. Even if these people were tried, and they will be tried, chances are their defense will be that they weren't criminally responsible. And we don't, in Canada, we do not convict people who are deemed not criminally responsible. So these people will never be jailed in that sense they will be given the treatment that people who have psychiatric illnesses are supposed to be given and that's health care we'll have to leave it at that Donardo jones thank you so much for your time tonight thank you for having me well, nice to have you along on this wednesday night we spent the first hour talking about the high price of rent right across the country and uh, what can be done about it you know rents are up significantly nine almost ten percent uh between april of 2022 and april of 2023 aaron and calgary says good evening ben while talking about the difficulty of renting and the increase in prices i'm curious why short-term rentals like airbnb are not mentioned more when discussing this issue when it comes to supply you're right I mean, it's an issue we've talked about a lot, I think, over time. We didn't bring it up tonight, but Airbnb, I mean, there's been legislation against uh, or trying to control at least short-term rentals in some places, including where I am here. Um, but how successful has it been? And, of course, Airbnb kind of collapsed during the height of the pandemic. It would be, you're right. It would be really interesting to see how it's come back, if it, and no doubt that it has, with lots of people traveling again. Um, 
and how many more units are being taken up by stuff like short-term rentals. Aaron, good point. We'll look into that as well. We've also been talking about things you should or shouldn't put in your fridge uh, tonight because we'll be mentioning that tomorrow. Um, and lots more about today's news stories about you know, bail reform we were talking about in the last half hour with Donardo Jones from the University of Windsor. Uh, there's been, there was a huge battle in the House of Commons yesterday between Pierre Polyev, the opposition leader, and uh, the Minister for Mental Health and Addiction, uh, Carolyn Bennett, uh, over safe supply. Do prime ministers have too much power? Uh, all of that. And to help us with it is, is um, Tristan Hopper of the National Post. Tristan, welcome back. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. So, so let's get let's start with the important stuff. Are there things that sh- do not belong in the fridge? Like, are you a ketchup and peanut butter never in the fridge kind of person, or with the kids uh, human and heads, uh, human endangered heads. species, uh, yes. asbestos, yeah, especially the aeros- aerosolized asbestos um, <laughs> things. Oh, 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 no, sorry. In, in terms of that stuff, yes, yes. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a generational thing, but when I go to my parents' house and they're in yeah. their fifties. Um, yeah, it's just a, a landscape of things that do not need refrigeration. And right. you know, sometimes it says, oh, you know, please refrigerate. I'm not sure if that they're just in cahoots with the refriger- big refrigerator. Yeah. Uh, but soy sauce does not need to be refrigerated. Ketchup does not yeah. need to be refrigerated. Mustard does not need to be refrigerated. Barbecue sauce says it does. I've left barbecue sauce out for years at a time. I'm fine. <laughs> You're fine. Um, yeah. So yeah, I can I can go through. I, I mean, even this is very this is very controversial. Um, outside of North America, so Canada and the United States, people don't refrigerate eggs. Um, yes, so if you go to Mexico or Europe, um, eggs are just on the counter. Uh, they don't last as long, but um, yeah, it's something about the washing process. But yeah, you go in large parts of Europe, uh, Central America, South America, there's just eggs out on the shelf. Um, so we refrigerate way too much, and maybe that's just a power move, like. I own a tiny room that can keep things cold and it burns energy and, you know, that's kind of asserting our wealth. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's quite – because people have lots of lots of opinions about it. Peanut butter is the big one. Peanut butter is the big one. Do you refrigerate Absolutely don't. And it ruins it. Um, also, butter. Um, so there's nothing worse than going to a restaurant and you get butter with your bread. And it's been kept in the refrigerator, and you're just stabbing it into the bread, and it's it's you know hard as a rock, and it doesn't go in. Right. So um, you're unnecessarily you know using up fridge space and energy uh, to refrigerate these things, and you're often compromising on quality. So all of those things, ketchup, ketchup doesn't taste as good when it's refrigerated. For most most of the time, if you chill something, it loses taste. Um, so there's any number of reasons why it's dumb. So um, yeah, this is. This is definitely. There's been fights sparked by this. It's interesting. There are fights. I mean, this was this know, was an argument going that's... over to my folks' house, and they'll be like, "Oh, we have to throw away the soy sauce because you left it out on the counter." That's mad. Left it out for nine for nine minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Soy sauce definitely does not belong. Does not need to be in the fridge. I don't know if it. I I, I feel like you just sort of put stuff in the fridge because I you know I put all condiments in the fridge because they belong together, right? You think, oh well, look, I'll I'll put the mustard beside the ketchup because they'll keep each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, the soy sauce right? will get lonely. It will. It will on yeah. the counter all, all by itself with the salt and pepper. You know, it belongs with the other saucy stuff in the fridge. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would pay close attention uh, to what does and does not. So the, the, the refrigerate label, I treat those the same as best before days. It's all a big scam uh, to get you to buy more food. So don't really listen to it, um, you know, within reason. Um, but uh, best before yeah, dates. I, I would use your judgment. Don't leave out mayonnaise. 
But no. I can't say. I, I've eaten warm mayonnaise, and I was fine. It's okay. Exactly. I've always think, think it's interesting people who go into grocery stores and will never take anything from the front. They'll always reach into the back for the one whose expiry date is undoubtedly further on. It's a common thing that my wife and I fight about. Not fight about. She does that all the time. I've started to do it too. But like if everyone reaches back and takes the ones in the back, then you're only left with the ones in the front. Then what happens? It's, it's anarchy. Yeah. Then, then they're just, you know, it's left, you know, 1972 Olympics. <laughs> You know, branded Coca-Cola. Exactly. You don't want that. Uh, Tristan, I I didn't mean to keep you so long on this very, very controversial and fascinating topic. Speaking of fascinating and controversial, you wrote a good piece today about prime ministers in Canada having too much power. That they are. Well, I didn't say they had too much power. I just said they have a lot of power and more than anyone else. So you can make an argument that that's good, and we should have essentially elected dictators in this country. But it, it does. It's remarkable. Um, I mean, I'm sure this comes up in conversation whenever the prime minister of Canada and I've seen interviews where Stephen Harper actually brought this up directly. He's like, I had so much power and I could do whatever I wanted. No one could stop me Um, because, yeah, the prime minister of Canada, as compared to any of his Democratic peers, uh, is able to do unbelievable things that are just inconceivable to a president of France, to a president of the United States. Um, to basically anyone else. So, good example, um, Trudeau was speaking today at the South Korean National Assembly, and South Korea was a military dictatorship about a generation ago. When they got rid of that, one of the things they got rid of was, oh, the president can't shut down the National Assembly anymore, obviously. Um, right. You know, that's an authoritarian oh. thing. If, you know, if we're arguing something that you don't like, you can't just, you know, everybody go home, screw the, screw the Assembly. Canada, as we know, you can do that if you're a prime minister. Uh, you can just prorogue Parliament whenever you feel like it, even if you're a minority exactly. prime minister, because you sit in the office, you get executive power. So there's a few things like that, um, which we're just all used to, but other countries are just baffled by it. It's an obscene I, amount of power. I think we actually have Trudeau speaking in South Korea today. <laughs> if you want to have a quick listen to what he had to say, you pointed out the irony of it all, but here he is. Antagonistic states around the world are using our economic interdependence for their own geopolitical advantage. Authoritarianism is gaining ground. There he is. Yeah, he was, uh, he, there he was in the, yeah, it's, uh, I, I've been there actually. I've been to that. I've been to Seoul and been to their parliament and so on. Uh, one of the things you pointed out that was interesting, because of course you're right, after all that time under military dictatorship, uh, the, the, the South Korean system was built in a, in a different way and probably a, in a slightly more modern way. But also naming judges as well. You said you thought that was a, an interesting power that the prime minister so there, seems to there have. There are other countries. So each one of these powers, uh, there are other countries where it, you know it, it is invested in the, the, the head of government. Um, but Canada, I mean, maybe someone could correct me on this. Um, there was four big powers. Well, three big powers. You can appoint everyone as prime minister. So everybody from judges to senators. So you can pick your entire upper house. Um, that's all handpicked. You can pick your boss. Uh, the governor general. So um, there are sort of versions of that. But when you roll it all together, appoint everyone uh, and you can dissolve or prorogue parliament wherever you want. I couldn't really find any other Democratic leader that can do all of those. Even if you go to other Westminster systems, it's an elected Senate in Australia. Um, In the UK, uh, the Supreme Court uh, is actually picked by a commission and the prime minister by law is not allowed to just pick his own judge. Um, right. instead of what the commission recommends or her own judge. Um, so Canada is the only one in which you can do all of these things with almost no oversight whatsoever. 
So, so I mean, I, I know I made an assumption that it was uh, that it was too much when we started. I think that might have had something to do with the with the way that the headline was put, was put on the, and the picture they used of uh, of Justin Trudeau in the National Post. But there, there are attempts out there to try to curb some of this, at least a little bit. Uh, yes, there was uh, an NDP MP. I think. Uh, well, the the problem is, so he brings this up and says, "Well, the prime minister has too much power," and he was just. Uh, suggesting moderate reforms, like very, very, very moderate things, like you know that would sort of limit a prime minister's ability to prorogue parliament. Um, I, one of those measures that's pretty uncontroversial, I think, among the general public, but it's been laughed off by the liberals and conservatives, the two parties that actually occupy the prime minister's office, because it's real nifty um, when you're in power to be able to do that. Uh, because again, um, obviously, when you have a majority parliament, you're basically a, a dictator. You can you can do anything you want. But even as a minority prime minister, so um, which Trudeau is right now, so his party only had 31 percent of the popular vote in the last election. Even as a minority prime minister, you still have all those appointment powers. You can call an election at any time. You have prorogation because that's just built into the prime minister's office. You know, it, it, it's not one of those things where it helps to have. Um, a majority in the House of Commons. That's just the executive powers that you have under any circumstance. So it's it's really the just sweeping executive powers of the office that are bigger than almost anyone else I can think of, at least in the democratic world. Yeah, no, it was a really interesting piece. Uh, Tristan Hopper is with us, uh, reporter with the National Post. We're talking about many things, what you should and shouldn't put in the fridge, being the first one we talked about. Tristan's really of the uh, of the opinion that lots of things don't belong in the fridge. Uh, and I think peanut butter was the one everyone was fighting about tonight, but uh, that was a good one. And an article that he wrote about it, just how much power a Canadian prime minister has. I mean, it's true to appoint members to the upper house, of course, the Senate, um, to appoint judges to the Supreme Court. When, when you think uh, of like, where Trudeau is sitting right now, and this has been yeah. true, this is sort of true of Harper, um, right. he's appointed most of his Supreme Court, He's a, who is supposed to overlook his legislation, he's appointed right. most of his upper chamber. So all of these bodies that, why do we have a you know Supreme Court? Why do we have a Senate? Oh, to you know, keep checks on the prime minister. But doesn't the prime minister pick all of those people and <laughs> there's no checks whatsoever? So like compared to the U.S., where you can't even appoint a cabinet as U.S. president without Senate confirmation. So you can do Absolutely. all of these things. When we get a new Supreme Court justice, I mean, it's someone whose name we don't even know. And we just get a press press release like, oh, the prime minister picked this person. You know, yeah, um, I think they're not going to be taking big... questions and they'll be in the court in a couple weeks. <laughs> Exactly. You make a good note. I mean, it's worth reading. It's, it's an interesting point. And, and it doesn't matter what your political stripes are, because as you pointed out so correctly, you know, both Stephen Harper admitted to it readily, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau as a, as a liberal prime minister, they've all taken advantage of it. And both the conservatives and the liberals are in no have no interest in changing it because it works well when they're in power. Tristan Hopper. Well, Harper was weird because he said he was he was bragging to so Barack Obama came out to Canada in 2009. And he said he sort of bragged to him because at that time, Barack Obama was president of the United States and had super majorities in both the House and the Senate. So this is as powerful as the U.S. president can possibly get. Um, and Harper was bragging to him and says, I'm a minority prime minister and I still have more power than you. Um, which is <laughs> absolutely true. Yeah, what can I do for you? Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. There is a free wireless internet signal all across North America, and nobody has figured out how to use it. It's like the Force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. Yeah, uh, Tristan Hopper is with us from the National Post. That's the trailer for the BlackBerry movie, which makes it – it's getting great reviews, but it's funny to think – maybe it's because I'm – 
in my early fifties now, but it's funny to think they've made a movie out of the black out of the Blackberry. It's interesting. Oh yeah, and then they're going to make a movie about the making of the Blackberry movie. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that would be a good one. Yeah, there's a movie about everything. No. <laughs> there is one. Do you have any fond nostalgia? Did you ever? Were you of the Blackberry age? Did you ever any fond nostalgia for that device? Oh, I did have a Palm Pilot. Uh, I, I, I purchased it from a, a fellow classmate uh, who actually became a tech billionaire. Um, really? Later on. But, There's uh, a good yeah, story it for you. Palm Pilot. Uh, he was yeah. actually made fun of as his name was Palm Pilot because he had a Palm right. Pilot in high school. He showed them, didn't he? Like Pontius, related to Pontius. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, so he became. He sold you his Palm Pilot and became a tech billionaire. Interesting. On the cutting edge. I think, I think so, yeah. He was also uh, he was an early adopter of the iPod, so the original click wheel um, right. iPod as well. So all of these things, which, yeah, are literally antiques, uh, 25 years uh, to be an antique. Um, so, it, it is. Uh, I yeah, mean, yeah I, I actually, um, as a, we both live in the same city, and uh, this is a great place to pick up antiques. I love picking up old electronics uh, because you can pick up a first-generation iPod for not that much money. And can you, you live like an absolute king circa 1999. So I right. can get the latest consoles, uh, you know, the latest electronics for like a couple hundred bucks. And you know, as long pilot. as I pretend yeah. the last two decades didn't happen, uh, I'm living high in the hog. You're fine. Because iPod, those yeah. first generation iPods got really expensive for a while. Um, I think so. Yeah, there are. Um, it's weird. It's sort of like typewriters. Uh, so... When I was in high school, the typewriters were dime a dozen. People were just putting them out on the curb. Typewriters are starting to go up in price um, because there is, uh, yeah, because I think it's millennials um, who are just saying this is a you know this is a cool thing to put in the corner. Um, I've never seen anything like this. Just a bunch of metal that works in an analog fashion. This is this is magic to me. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I'm, I'm 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 yet to see a typewriter under a hundred dollars, which is less than what it's sold for, especially adjusting for inflation. But it's it's certainly more than it used to be. Yeah, I, I would dare any of them to try and type an essay on one, though, <laughs> at these days. I mean, oh, I remember, yeah, I, I had, not I was not be a journalist yeah. if I had to do that. Just absolutely no. not. I, we did something last night about the, the fact that uh, Gen Z was, are into flip phones. The flip phone has made sort of a return. You know, so they call them dumb phones as opposed to smartphones. But that the flip phone is back, too. I never had a flip phone. I went right from like a I get a version thing. of that when I was did you? Uh, a teenager. I actually had a garage, so I picked up a brick phone. Um, and then I, I sold it to a friend. I don't think he actually, I think for a brief period of time, you were still able to hook it up to the network and you still may be able to. Um, and you could run this large Motorola brick phone on the regular network. Of course, when the Motorola brick phone came out, it was like $2 a minute. Some just, you know, and adjusted for inflation, it's like $5 a minute. So it's just some extremely high. But you could run it just as a $30 a month pay as you go phone um, for period of time so you know that was kind of a cool hipster thing too so yeah flip phone is a version of that i'm picturing you with sort of gordon gecko slick back hair yelling into that phone that's what that's what i know that's not what happened but oh yeah i, I also went through a suspender phase um not a lot of sex for me happening during this era if anyone's surprised <laughs> the suspender, there's nothing wrong with suspenders as long as they hold up your yeah. trousers the uh but yeah i mean the, the return of old tech is interesting and i guess if you're out hunting about i've noticed because uh, again we're in the same city that you go by these places these sort of um secondhand stores that are more more expensive than your average sort of junk shop and the stuff that appears in the window you're like oh interesting i didn't know i didn't realize those would ever have value again like electronics specifically yeah, and then what surprises me is some things that never, ever get valuable. So I've also been collecting 78, 78 records. So these are 
Um, yes. Uh, almost 100 years old. I mean, my collection. And this is just people giving away booklets of these things. Because there's so many of them. Um, so Still. some things like typewriters magically rise, rise in value. And then some things like Roman coins never, ever, ever go up in value because there's so damn many of them. Yeah. Well, you hold on to those Glenn Miller records. You, you never know those Paris Prado records. You never know what will happen in the future. Maybe well, I always be think I've got one of those wind-up record players. So when the earthquake comes, yeah. I'm going to be the only one with music. You'll be the only one who – the only one playing – we'll know where the music's coming from. Yeah. Follow the Count Basie. Exactly. Well, as always, Tristan, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I think it was yesterday or earlier this week that I was reading about an initiative uh, out here in BC called Cone Zone. It's a, it's a campaign to raise awareness for roadside worker safety. And it so happened that this morning when I was uh, first looking at the news, there was a really tragic event not far from where I am in Victoria, um, a municipal worker in Oak Bay, which is a, a community within, really within Victoria itself. It's separate, but nearby. A municipal worker there, a 52-year-old, had been working over a manhole cover uh, on the sidewalk when he was hit uh, by a driver and killed, a 52-year-old. And, you know, I mean, again, the circumstances aren't what you typically associate with with road workers' safety because I don't believe he was actually uh, on the road itself, but I, the details are still a bit sketchy. But it was a real, it was a real reminder of the dangers that people working out on our streets face, out on our roads. And with construction season here, of course, as spring uh, has arrived in most parts of the country, uh, we have more and more people out doing that kind of work. And there's some real sobering statistics around that. Uh, these are BC-specific, but 12 people have been killed on the job between 2012 and 2021. More than 200 have been hurt have been hurt over that time. And again, a tragic reminder of the dangers that many face doing that work uh, today here in the Victoria area. Uh, joining me now with more on this is Trace Akers. He's Program Director for Road Safety at Work. And Christina Van Duren, who's a Dispatch Manager with the uh, BCRS Road Safe Inc. And also a roadside worker. Thank you both for being here tonight. No Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Christina, yeah, let me start with you. I mean, the, every time we see these stories, I can only imagine if you know what it's like to be out there, you must have a, a, you know, a real perspective on what it must be like, what the dangers are like. It's very scary out there. It's different than what it was like 10 to 20 years ago. There, it, everyone's just, everyone's in a rush. Nobody seems to respect us. I mean, we're not there to inconvenience people, but we're there to make everyone safe and make sure everyone goes home at the end of the day. Like people yeah. need to slow down and understand. Like we're not. Yeah, you're the, you're there for a purpose, right? I mean, I, I was. Yeah. Um, I, there's even construction going on right on my walk to work, and you know, there's obviously flaggers out trying to get people to obey, and it's a little confusing because yeah. I'm on a busy street, and and people just don't don't they don't take kindly to it and it's weird because you yeah. think they're not you know th th this person's not out there because they they're, they're not out there to ruin your day right that's not why they're yeah. there yeah yeah it's it yeah it's just it's crazy it's just a different time sorry i'm a little nervous <laughs> yeah I'm done with you yeah. Um, yeah no worries. Yeah, no, i just wish people would just slow down more and just you know respect us out there like i've had a few close encounters in my lifetime and it's scary like, even my daughter wants to go and do this, and I told her, no way, no way. It's really? way too dangerous out there. Now one of us. How, how does it usually, like, for, for someone who's, who's right there, how does it usually manifest itself? Is it someone speeding? Is it someone who just speeds up? I mean, how, what, can you tell when a driver is coming at you that they're not paying attention to you or they're not going to slow down? How does it work normally when you're out there and you're trying to protect yourself but also do your job? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, for instance, I'll use one just two weeks ago. I was on a night job, and I'm all lit up. I've got my wand, the lights all around me and stuff, and I was, like, waving my sign at this guy, but he was just, like, speeding, and I almost came close to getting hit. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, you see the signs, construction pairs stop later, and yet you're still bombing on through the site. Like, it's no big deal. Like, it's it's uh, it's just, it's nuts. I'm sorry, yeah, it's just I, nuts. It's scary. Yeah, it's a very it sounds- scary thing. It's just- it does. It does. I think anyone who's spent time out on a, on a busy street or stood out, you know, when it's when it's no, when the lights are changing, where you you can feel the cars coming at you, and I can't imagine what the, what's that what that's like, uh, you know, day in day out. Trace Acres, uh, Trace, this is a big issue. I mean, every year you call attention to it uh, at the right time of year because everyone has to get used to seeing people out doing road work again. Uh, but this is a big issue in BC and right across the country. It's a, a big issue everywhere, and uh, the mm-hmm. uh, just as Christina says, um, not only are people speeding through uh, work zones, but they are distracted. And uh, so we launched the campaign this week, as we do at this time every year, and we launched it in conjunction with RCMP, who held an enforcement event in Aldergrove in B.C., and uh, uh, they issued 11 infractions, 11 tickets uh, during that uh, during a two hour period in the morning during the morning rush hour. And 10 of them were for illegal cell phone use. So oh, really? people okay. are, are just not getting it. I guess the good news is they didn't issue any infractions for speeding in that particular uh, instance, but they issued 10 infractions for people illegally on their cell phones so it just shows you that yeah you know people are not paying attention and you really do need to pay attention when you're going through a work zone not only because of the workers who are there to protect the workers uh, but to protect yourselves as well there's a lot of equipment a lot of mobile equipment uh, that can the road can be narrowed in a work zone Um, the, the shoulders can be soft so there's all kinds of reasons why you really do need to pay attention and keep those roadside workers safe and again, no coincidence on the timing, right? As you mentioned, it is that time of year where drivers have to begin to getting used to, we all have to get used to seeing people out on the road again, doing this kind of work, because for a while it goes away, specifically perhaps not as much in warmer parts of, the, of, the, of where we are in BC, but in other parts of the country. And this is a time of year where you have to get used to sharing that road again. Well, it is at that time of the year for a lot of construction work. But I think what is really important to remember as well, and the very tragic incident in Victoria and Oak Bay this morning, yeah. Is a, is a stark reminder of the fact that it's not just construction workers that we need to protect at the roadside. There are so many people working at the roadside, first, first responders, um, uh, municipal workers, utility workers, tow truck operators. There's a lot of people at the roadside. They all deserve our attention and they deserve to be protected so they can go home safely at the end of their shift. Yeah, I, I, I imagine you're right. I, I suppose the cone zone sort of it conjures up images of construction. But when you when we saw what we saw in Oak Bay today, and in, in general is is just having to be aware of people doing work on the side of the road, no matter where they are. And and that's part of, is that part of what you do as well. Yes, and uh, part of the cone zone campaign. You're absolutely right. The the image of cone zone speaks to construction. But what we're really trying to tell people and to raise awareness about is that there are. A lot of roadside workers, just as I said, first responders, tow truck operators, utility workers. There's a lot of people who are working at the roadside. And any time that you see flashing lights, 
So it could be red and blue flashing lights from first responders, or it could be amber flashing lights that you would see on a utility vehicle or a tow vehicle. You need to slow down. You have a legal obligation to slow down. I, I witnessed something this morning that I thought was really interesting. I was driving through a school zone, and everyone was dutifully adhering to the 30-kilometer-per-hour speed zone through the, the school zone. And just after the school zone ended, there was a work zone. And everybody sped up after they got out of the school zone. They didn't be completely ignored the work zone. And it was municipal workers. And I thought, isn't that interesting that they, they, they get it when it comes to the school zone, but passing that work zone where there were amber lights flashing, they just sped up to normal speeds. Why do you think that is? Because it, you're right. That it, That is, I think it took a long time. I mean, there were some real tragedies. When I was growing up, I remember there were some real school bus tragedies. There were some real school zone tragedies that, you know, made, a, made made for a big awareness campaign that it had to stop. And I think people have pretty much figured that out by now. Not always. But what is it about construction zones that, that people that people still don't understand, do you think? Well, and not just construction zones, but any roadside work zone, it's important right. to uh, to remember. Um, but what I think is is sometimes happens is you hear people complain that they're they come upon a, upon a construction zone where they see a construction zone speed limit, yet they don't see any workers around. So they think, well, why do I have to slow down? There's no workers around. Well, those speed limits may be in place for your own protection because the road may be narrow. There may be uh, lane uh, closures. Uh, there could be um, uh, soft shoulders or no shoulders, uh, uneven pavement. So there's all kind of reasons why in a construction zone, even if there aren't a lot of workers at the side of the road, you still need to slow down. Um, but it is I think it's it's one of those things that we just we need to educate. People need to understand the slow down, move over law in B.C., has now been in place for about 15 years. It originally came in place um, just related to emergency workers, but it has since been expanded to all roadside workers. Anytime you see amber flashing lights, red and blue flashing lights, you're obligated to slow down and, if it's possible, to move over into another lane to give those workers room to do their job. Yeah, Christina, when you notice, when you feel like you're you're in, in a dangerous situation, is it normally because people are are just distracted? It's not, they're not paying attention. Is that it's not it's not aggressive? It's not malicious? It's just not paying attention. Yes, absolutely. There, a lot of people are not paying attention, too busy worrying about what's whatever whatever's going on in life. I'm not sure, but just yeah, there's not people are just too distracted with things. They just don't, and some people don't see us. But, I mean, how do you not see us when you're going through a work zone like it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, I get. It. I mean, what, what's the sense then for those who who work who do what you do? I mean, you were just saying that you would didn't want you wouldn't want your daughter to do the same. Is, is there is there a, a palpable sense of of concern amongst anyone who does this about what the, what the next shift may hold? Well, like I said, ten to twenty years ago, it was way different than what it is now. Everyone is they just want to go go go. They don't want to obey anything. They don't care. It's just go go go. And that much of a really difference, shouldn't... eh? Pardon me? How long have you been doing that, that much of a difference in 20 years? Because, I mean, I guess cell phones weren't as common 20 years ago, right? But yeah. I, it, what do you think? What do you think? Why do you think that would be? There's just too many people on the road now. Way too right. many people. We're talking about uh, roadside worker safety this half hour. Uh, it is Cone Zone. Uh, the Cone Zone campaign is launched in BC already. It happens every time, uh, every spring at this time of year. There are more people out working on roads at this time of year, obviously, or by roads, and it's 
uh, a chance to raise awareness about uh, about how to make sure they're safe. Uh, Trace Akers is with us. He pro- he's Program Director for Road Safety at Work. And Christina Von Duren is a roadside worker. She's with a dispatch manager with BCRS Road Safe. Safe Inc. Uh, Trace, what would you like to see accomplished this year? I mean, I guess every year you set out with goals uh, to, is, to, to see if there's um, ways to, to try to improve roadside safety for workers. Uh, what would you like to see this year, this year's campaign achieve? Well, I was going to say we'd love to see um, get through the campaign with no worker deaths or injuries, but unfortunately, um, that has already happened uh, uh, this morning uh, in in the Victoria area. So I guess we we'd love to say you know no more um, deaths or injuries, but most of all, I think it is to really raise that awareness that um, roadside workers are vulnerable. The only thing that's that's separating their workplace from cars whizzing by are a few orange cones and sometimes nothing at all. So um, and, and, you know, cars can easily go out of control, especially if somebody is distracted by something in the car um, and uh, drivers really need to heighten their awareness as they're driving through any kind of work zone uh, because there is a lot going on. There are uh, traffic control personnel. There are um, construction workers. There are first responders. And so heightened awareness uh, when you're proceeding through any kind of a work zone, I think, is, is really the goal so that we can reduce those injuries and deaths right down to zero. Yeah, because because part of this is is a trade off, of course, because the other option is just to close it all off, right? Protect people by simply closing off access altogether. I know we don't see that often. It's not done often because we want to accommodate uh, the continuation of traffic even through construction zones or when people are working nearby. Um, but that's the trade off, right? Uh, the, the traffic continues to flow, and in re- in return, you need to pay attention to what's what's around you. Well, exactly. And one of the things that uh, that we try to advise drivers is if if you can avoid uh, construction zones, um, do so. If there's a a suitable alternative route that you can take, then that's great. It might save you a little bit of time and then it takes a few more vehicles out of that particular work zone. But there's a lot of work zones that we don't know that they're there. Um, if there's an accident scene, as an example, that, uh, that fire and ambulance have to attend to, uh, we typically don't know when there's municipal work underway or utility work underway. So there's a lot of those situations that are just going to uh, uh, crop up and uh, you won't know that they are there. So uh, just really be aware, slow down and uh, and uh, stay off your stay off your mobile phone or your, your cell phone yeah. device. You would think that one had been hammered home enough over the past while, but I guess people just keep on using them. You mentioned with the with the eleven stops that the RCMP made uh, in your uh, first opening campaign for this for this uh, uh, cone zone uh, campaign that uh, ten of them were cell phone were cell phone stops. Yeah, and I, I think what happens is that if people have to slow down or to crawl through a a work zone, as an example, right. um, maybe they think, well, I'm I'm only going. Uh, 15 or 20 kilometers an hour so now's the time that i can sneak a peek at my texts and see what's uh, what's going on there which is absolutely the wrong and uh, the wrong attitude it's uh, i got to be paying a lot of attention as i'm going through this work zone because the uh, the road narrows there's a lot of work going on around me there's a lot of people around me and uh, those people who are working at the roadside are vulnerable Right. And last word to you, Christina. You're the one who's out there at times. So what would you like drivers to know next time they're approaching approaching you or any of your colleagues? Just slow down and, and, and watch what we're asking you guys to do. I mean, it's not that hard. And just 
just make it safe for everybody. We all want to go home at the end of the day. We all want to go home to our families. Um, I think, you know what, people should, some people should come into this industry and just, just see what it's like, some of the drivers. And I bet you they would take a second guess or a second chance and just be like, wow, you know what, this is really is a, a high, it's a dangerous job. And yes, you know what, I am going to start respecting people. People don't, I don't know, people don't really understand what, what it is that we really, what we really put ourselves through every day to make sure that everything is safe and our workers are safe. Yeah, well, I wish you lots of uh, lots of safety, Christina. Thank you so much for your time, and Trace Acres. Thank you as well. No uh, thank you. Lots to learn this evening. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Come over here. I thought of a new idea. Mr. Wallace put forward a theory that's too fantastic to explain. Do you mean that a bomb can bounce along the water like a ping pong ball? It's no good, it's too short. You're going to attack the great dams of Western Germany. Stand by, everyone. We're going in. It's got to be done at low level. It sounds a bit far-fetched. Looks impossible. If we can surprise them, then we'll play hell with them. There you go. You might recognize that film trailer from all the way back in 1955. That's the movie Dam Busters with Richard Todd and Michael Redgrave. That movie, of course, celebrating the infamous raid 12 years earlier, carried out by 133 air crew from uh, right across from many countries, 30 Canadians, by the way, on 19 adapted Lancaster bombers. Those raids would go down as one of the most audacious attacks of the Second World War. Now, last year and into like sort of the night of the 16th into the 17th, so last night into this morning they would have been returning today uh those who survived of course marked 80 years since the now infamous raid struck at the heart of germany's operations during the second world war uh the mission was so secretive that even at the time the crews weren't told what the targets were until the night before so on may 16 1943 air crews from australia britain america and new zealand and of course canada were handpicked to fly uh, over and fly over and bomb three dams in Germany's Ruhr Valley. Uh, Operation Chastise was called, now known as the Dam Busters Raid. Uh, they had to bounce, as was mentioned in that uh, trailer, movie trailer, they had to bounce, the, they were mines actually along the water behind each dam where they would sink before exploding. The pilots had to fly at less than 20 meters above the water at speeds of somewhere around 370 kilometers an hour to make it work. And it was not, not an easy task. Eight of the 19 bombers involved were shot down. 53 people were killed. Three were captured. Um, of the 30 Canadians, 14 were killed. One was captured. Four of the survivors were killed later in the war. The last Canadian dam buster passed away just in 2019. We wanted to pay a tribute to that incredible raid 80 years later. To do so is uh, Carl Karsgaard. He is the curator of the Bomber Command Museum in Nanton, Alberta, that is south of Calgary. He's a retired pilot himself. He was trained, as a matter of fact, in his early days as he was getting his wings, so to speak, was trained by one of the pilots or one of those who carried out the raids, a Canadian who took part of the damn buster raids and lived to tell that remarkable tale. And uh, Carl joins us now. Uh, Carl Karsgaard, thank you for your time. Well, thanks for inviting us on, and uh, our museum out here in Alberta is dedicated to the 10,500 Canadian airmen in Bomber Command that were killed in action during World War II, and right. of course, 
there were 30 RCAF Canadians on the Dambuster raid, and 14 of those 30 were killed in action. Right. So of that, of that more than 10,000, uh, certainly those 14 as well. Tell me a bit about, about the, the, the idea for the, for the Dambuster raid itself, because it was, the word often used is audacious. And it certainly was a risky and daring plan uh, at the time. What, what were they attempting to do and why was it so audacious? Well, at that point in the war in 1943, the Allies needed to really step up and become more aggressive, more accurate, better technology. And uh, thank goodness they had the brilliant man, Barnes Wallace, that came up with the possibility of a bouncing bomb. It was actually a mine. It was used by the Lancasters to get to the dam, the face of the dam. You see, if you put nets, across a dam underwater, you can't attack it with divers or torpedoes or whatever. So the only way of getting the bomb up to the front of the dam to blow it open was to skip a 9,000-pound bomb across 1,400 feet of water, if you can imagine. To get that close, to be able to to launch, and then hope that momentum carries those 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 mines, those bouncing mines across the water and into the dam. That of it in of itself was 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 incredibly uh, daring and had never been seen before, right? That's correct. No no technique like that had ever been used before, but it took a, a special breed of airmen, and of course the famous guy Gibson, uh, Victoria Cross winner who ended up doing 170-some bomber combat missions during World War II. But this is in the middle of his career, leading 617 Squadron into the dams. And even in baseball, two out of three is pretty good. That's bigger than that's that's above Ty Cobb territory there uh, tell me about the Canadians tell me about the Canadians here because Canada did play a big role and you already mentioned it that uh, there were 30 Canadians involved and they I mean there were airmen from from many places involved in this but Canada did play a really big role in all this including some of the the very important roles that night for individual airmen yes uh okay so 30 Canadian RCAF Canadian airmen were on the uh, Dambuster raid, the original raid. I'm looking at a photo of uh, the uh, men who survived, but we lost 14 Canadians out of the 30 were killed in their bombers. They were various trades, and uh, one of them survived the crash of the, of the bomber and became a prisoner of war, but uh, of high note on the Dambuster raid. Guy Gibson, the leader of the entire raid, his navigator was a young Canadian airman, Terry Tarum, from Milo, Alberta. But really, so so as the navigator to the to the to the main to the main plane, essentially. I mean, those were. If you take me back to what that Lancaster looked like, I think people even forget how those would be crewed, right? Uh, yes, uh, seven. Uh, well, actually, six men. For the Dambuster raid, a, a normal bomber crew is seven, but in order to save weight, 
for the Dambuster Lancasters, they took out the top turret called the mid-upper turret, so they didn't need that air gunner to be in that top turret. So really six men for each Lancaster. And unfortunately, they lost uh, nine Lancasters out of the 19 that set out to uh, attack the dams. Carl, when you one looks at it, though, I mean, the danger involved, the risk involved, the, the willingness to sacrifice airmen as well. If you look back at it in hindsight, I mean, a lot of those airmen must have known they weren't going to come back. Oh, yes, they knew. That's what amazes me and uh, makes me feel such a close affinity to these young airmen, especially those of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Every night they came back and they would see somebody's chair missing, somebody's bed not used at their domiciles. They knew that sooner or later they might get killed in action. And out of 100 bomber crews that started out to do 30 missions, 30 ops, only 50 out of 100 would be killed. And only 25% of those bomber crews would finish 30 combat trips. Although you've mentioned, of course, that that as far as the course of the war was concerned, if we carry ourselves all the way back to 80 years ago tonight, the war was not necessarily going in the Allies' favor. As you mentioned off the top, there was the need uh, for a major statement to be made. What was the impact of that raid, the impact of the raid itself in terms of the damage it did, and then the moral impact of the success of it to the war effort in general? Well, uh, it was a, a great, brilliant surgical raid, and perhaps maybe in the total scheme of the war, it wasn't that huge telling blow against the Nazis. But what it was, was we can get any target we want. We have the technology. We have the aircraft. We have the men. Watch out, Adolf. We're coming. Now, just a quick analogy. Say your hockey team is down three to nothing and you can't buy a goal and everything is going against you. And all of a sudden, you score that first goal. Literally, the floodgates will open. It's like this was a telling moment in the progress of a five-year, six-year war, is the Dambuster raid was that moment in time where all of a sudden, hey, we can do this. I remember seeing the images of the king and the queen going to, going to thank them just a few weeks after the raids were done, right in late May of, of 1943. Yes, they deserve all the credit and what they they were awarded for their services. But 617 Squadron, you know how many surgical targets and great raids they did after the dams raid. So 617 is at the ultimate top of Bomber Command, and Canada was a major contributor to Bomber Command in World War II. So, Carl, you also have a personal connection to that, to those nights of raids, the, the, the dam buster raids, uh, through your early days learning to be a pilot. You were actually trained by someone who, who was there. What was that like? Who was that and what was that like? Well, it kind of went by me at the moment in time when it happened, but I was doing my twin engine rating when I was a young man to get ready for my airline career. I was hopeful to become an airline pilot. And I took my twin engine training from Ken Brown, 
one of the RCAF pilots on the Dambuster raid. So Amazing. I treasure that signature in my logbook. Uh, did he ever talk about? I guess he wouldn't have talked about it necessarily unless you unless you had asked. Well, yes, I could have at the time, but uh, that was before I became part of the Bomber Command Museum. We have beautiful speeches and videos of Ken Brown telling everything about what happened on the night of the Dambuster raid on our museum website. Right. I, I know that, that if folks happen to be uh, south of Calgary and Nanton, that they can come see you, right? And there's a lot of you have a whole, uh, a whole display that, that pays tribute, not just to, well, to Bomber Command uh, largely, but also to that particular raid. Yes. We have a running Lancaster. We spent eight years and rebuilt the Merlins on our Lancaster. So we, we take it out and run it once a month on the parking lot for the crowds. We have all of the, the Dam Buster artifacts from that raid. We have a exact bouncing bomb replica sitting beside the Lancaster. We have a beautiful memorial wall which is 40 feet long and seven feet high. And on it is the, it's a national memorial, are the 10,500 names of the airmen killed in bombers that were Canadian in World War II. We invite everybody to come and see what it was like on the Lancaster and in Bomber Command. I know there was, you know, there was obviously the movie made in 1955. This has been one of the more celebrated offensives of the, of the Second World War. But do you feel like uh, here we are 80 years later, do you feel like those who took part in that, in those, in those two nights of raids have been given the recognition they deserve? I would say that the Dambuster raid, I would say yes. It's that it's a high point of Bomber Command, but overall Bomber Command has not been given the credit it was due. There would have been no D-Day on June the 6th, 1944, if Bomber Command had not hammered the Nazi supply lines so they couldn't throw the invasion back into the sea. So Bomber Command set the stage for the beginning of the end of the war. So they're all connected together in giant chess pieces, but Bomber Command is there throughout the war, uh, hammering at Nazi empire. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time on this tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, we hope to invite everybody out to Nanton, Alberta. 